Section 20 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadette Perrin. Caesar. Chapters 58 to 69. Chapter 58. As for the nobles... To some of them he promised consulships and praetorships in the future. Others he appeased with sundry other powers and honors, and in all he implanted hopes, since he ardently desired to rule over willing subjects. Therefore, when Maximus the consul died, he appointed Caninius Ravilius consul, for the one day still remaining of the term of office, to him, as we are told, many were going with congratulations and offers of escort, whereupon Cicero said, Let us make haste, or else the man's consulship will have expired. Caesar's many successes, however, did not divert his natural spirit of enterprise and ambition to the enjoyment of what he had laboriously achieved, but served as fuel and incentive for future achievements and begat in him plans for greater deeds and a passion for fresh glory, as though he had used up what he already had. What he felt was therefore nothing else than emulation of himself, as if he had been another man, and a sort of rivalry between what he had done and what he purposed to do. For he planned and prepared to make an expedition against the Parthians, and after subduing these and marching around the Euxine by way of Hyrcania, the Caspian Sea, and the Caucasus, to invade Scythia, and after overrunning the countries bordering on Germany and Germany itself, to come back by way of Gaul to Italy, and so to complete this circuit of his empire, which would then be bounded on all sides by the ocean." During this expedition, moreover, he intended to dig through the Isthmus of Corinth, and had already put Aeneas in charge of this work. He intended also to divert the Tiber just below the city into a deep channel, give it a bend towards Circium, and make it empty into the sea at Terracina, thus contriving for merchantmen a safe as well as an easy passage to Rome. And besides this, to convert the marshes about Pomentinum and Satia, into a plain which many thousands of men could cultivate, and farther, to build moles which should barricade the sea where it was nearest to Rome, to clear away the hidden dangers on the shore of Ostia, and then construct harbors and roadsteads sufficient for the great fleets that would visit them. And all these things were in preparation. Chapter 59. The adjustment of the calendar, however, and the correction of the irregularity in the computation of time, were not only studied scientifically by him, but also brought to completion, and proved to be of the highest utility, for not only in very ancient times was the relation of the lunar to the solar year in great confusion among the Romans, so that the sacrificial feasts and festivals, diverging gradually, at last fell in opposite seasons of the year, but also at this time people generally had no way of computing the actual solar year footnote at this time the roman calendar was more than two months ahead of the solar year caesar's reform went into effect in forty six b c and footnote 
the priests alone knew the proper time and would suddenly and to everybody's surprise insert the intercalary month called mercedonius numa the king is said to have been the first to intercalate this month thus devising a slight and short-lived remedy for the error in regard to the sidereal and solar cycles as i have said in his life but caesar laid the problem before the best philosophers and mathematicians and out of the methods of correction which were already at hand compounded one of his own which was more accurate than any this the romans used down to the present time and are thought to be less in error than other peoples as regards the inequality between the lunar and solar years however even this furnished occasion for blame to those who envied caesar and disliked his power at any rate cicero the orator we are told when someone remarked that lyra would rise on the morrow said yes by decree implying that men were compelled to accept even this dispensation chapter sixty but the most open and deadly hatred towards him was produced by his passion for the royal power for the multitude this was the first cause of hatred and for those who had long smothered their hate a most specious pretext for it and yet those who were advocating this honor for caesar actually spread abroad among the people a report that from the sibylline books it appeared that parthia could be taken if the romans went up against it with a king but otherwise could not be assailed and as caesar was coming down from alba into the city they ventured to hail him as a king but at this the people were confounded and caesar disturbed in mind said that his name was not king but caesar and seeing that his words produced a universal silence he passed on with no very cheerful or contented looks moreover after sundry extravagant honors had been voted him in the senate it chanced that he was sitting above the rostra and as the praetors and consuls drew near with the whole senate following them he did not rise to receive them but as if he were dealing with mere private persons replied that his honours needed curtailment rather than enlargement this vexed not only the senate but also the people who felt that in the persons of the senators the state was insulted and in a terrible dejection they went away at once all who were not obliged to remain so that caesar too when he was aware of his mistake immediately turned to go home and drawing back his toga from his neck cried in loud tones to his friends that he was ready to offer his throat to any one who wished to kill him but afterwards he made his disease an excuse for his behaviour saying that the senses of those who are thus afflicted do not usually remain steady when they address a multitude standing but are speedily shaken and whirled about bringing on giddiness and insensibility however what he said was not true on the contrary he was very desirous of rising to receive the senate but one of his friends as they say or rather one of his flatterers cornelius balbus restrained him saying remember that thou art caesar and permit thyself to be courted as a superior chapter sixty one there was added to these causes of offence his insult to the tribunes it was namely the festival of the lupercalia of which many write that it was anciently celebrated by shepherds 
and has also some connection to the Arcadian Lycia. At this time many of the noble youths and of the magistrates ran up and down through the city naked for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. And many women of rank also purposely get in their way, and like children at school present their hands to be struck, believing that the pregnant will thus be helped to an easy delivery, and the barren to pregnancy. These ceremonies Caesar was witnessing, seated upon the rostra, on a golden throne, arrayed in triumphal attire. And Antony was one of the runners in the sacred race, for he was consul. Accordingly, after he had dashed into the forum and the crowd had made way for him, he carried a diadem, round which a wreath of laurel was tied, and held it out to Caesar. Then there was applause, not loud, but slight and preconcerted. But when Caesar pushed away the diadem, all the people applauded, and when Antony offered it again, few, and when Caesar declined it again, all applauded. The experiment having thus failed, Caesar rose from his seat after ordering the wreath to be carried up to the capital. But then his statues were seen to have been decked with royal diadems. So two of the tribunes, Flavius and Marillus, went up to them and pulled off the diadems and after discovering those who had first hailed Caesar as king, led them off to prison. Moreover, the people followed the tribunes with applause, and called them Brutuses, because Brutus was the man who put an end to the royal succession, and brought the power into the hands of the senate and people instead of a sole ruler. At this Caesar was greatly vexed, and deprived Marillus and Flavius of their office, while in his denunciation of them, although he at the same time insulted the people, he called them repeatedly brutes and simians. Chapter 62 Under these circumstances, the multitude turned their thoughts towards Marcus Brutus, who was thought to be a descendant of the elder Brutus on his father's side. On his mother's side belonged to the Servilii, another illustrious house, and was a son-in-law and nephew of Cato. The desires which Brutus felt to attempt of his own accord the abolition of the monarchy were blunted by the favors and honors that he had received from Caesar, for not only had his life been spared at Pharsalus after Pompey's flight, and the lives of many of his friends at his entreaty, but also he had great credit with Caesar. He had received the most honorable of the praetorships for the current year, and was to be consul three years later having been preferred to Cassius, who was a rival candidate. For Caesar, as we are told, said that Cassius urged the juster claims to the office, but that for his own part he could not pass Brutus by. Once, too, when certain persons were actually accusing Brutus to him, the conspiracy being already on foot, Caesar would not heed them, but laying his hand upon his body, said to the accusers, Brutus will wait for this shriveled skin, implying that Brutus was worthy to rule because of his virtue, but that for the sake of ruling he would not become a thankless villain. Those, however, who were eager for the change, and fixed their eyes on Brutus alone, or on him first, did not venture to talk with him directly, but by night they covered his praetorial tribune and chair with writings, 
most of which were of this sort. Thou art asleep, Brutus, or thou art not Brutus. When Cassius perceived that the ambition of Brutus was somewhat stirred by these things, he was more urgent with him than before, and pricked him on, having himself also some private grounds for hating Caesar. These I have mentioned in the life of Brutus. Moreover, Caesar actually suspected him, so that he once said to his friends, What, think ye, doth Cassius want? I like him not over much, for he is much too pale. And again we are told that when Antony and Dolabella were accused to him of plotting revolution, Caesar said, I am not much in fear of these fat, long-haired fellows, but rather of those pale, thin ones, meaning Brutus and Cassius. Chapter 63 But destiny, it would seem, is not so much unexpected as it is unavoidable, since they say that amazing signs and apparitions were seen. Now, as for lights in the heavens, crashing sounds borne all about by night, and birds of omen coming down into the forum, it is perhaps not worth while to mention these precursors of so great an event. But Strabo the philosopher says that multitudes of men all on fire were seen rushing up, and a soldier's slave threw from his hand a copious flame, and seemed to the spectators to be burning. But when the flame ceased, the man was uninjured. He says, moreover, that when Caesar himself was sacrificing, the heart of the victim was not to be found, and the prodigy caused fear, since in the course of nature certainly an animal without a heart could not exist. The following story, too, is told by many. A certain seer warned Caesar to be on his guard against a great peril on the day of the month of March, which the Romans call the Ides. And when the day had come and Caesar was on his way to the Senate house, he greeted the seer with a jest and said, Well, the Ides of March are come. And the seer said to him softly, Aye, they are come, but they are not gone. Moreover, on the day before, when Marcus Lepidus was entertaining him at supper, Caesar chanced to be signing letters, as his custom was, while reclining at table, and the discourse turned suddenly upon the question of what sort of death was the best. Before anyone else could answer, Caesar cried out, That which is unexpected. After this, while he was sleeping as usual by the side of his wife, all the windows and doors of the chamber flew open at once and Caesar, confounded by the noise and the light of the moon shining down upon him, noticed that Calpurnia was in a deep slumber, but was uttering indistinct words and inarticulate groans in her sleep, for she dreamed, as it proved, that she was holding her murdered husband in her arms and bewailing him. Some, however, say that this was not the vision which the woman had, but that there was attached to Caesar's house, to give it adornment and distinction, by vote of the Senate, a gable ornament, as Livy says, and it was this which Calpurnia in her dreams saw torn down, and therefore, as she thought, wailed and wept. At all events, when day came, she begged Caesar, if it was possible not to go out, 
but to postpone the meeting of the Senate. If, however, he had no concern at all for her dreams, she besought him to inquire by other modes of divination and by sacrifices concerning the future. And Caesar also, as it would appear, was in some suspicion and fear, for never before had he perceived in Calpurnia any womanish superstition, but now he saw that she was in great distress, and when the seers also, after many sacrifices, told him that the omens were unfavorable, he resolved to send Antony and dismiss the Senate. Chapter 64 But at this juncture Decimus Brutus, surnamed Albinus, who was so trusted by Caesar that he was entered in his will as his second heir, but was partner in the conspiracy of the other Brutus and Cassius, fearing that if Caesar should elude that day, their undertaking would become known, ridiculed the seers and chided Caesar for laying himself open to malicious charges on the part of the senators, who would think themselves mocked at, for they had met at his bidding, and were ready and willing to vote as one man that he should be declared king of the provinces outside of Italy, and might wear a diadem when he went anywhere else by land or sea. But if someone should tell them at their session to be gone now, but to come back again when Calpurnia should have better dreams, what speeches would be made by his enemies— or who would listen to his friends when they tried to show that this was not slavery and tyranny. But if he was fully resolved, Albinus said, to regard the day as inauspicious, it was better that he should go in person and address the Senate, and then postpone its business. While saying these things, Brutus took Caesar by the hand and began to lead him along, and he had gone but a little way from his door when a slave, belonging to someone else, eager to get at Caesar, but unable to do so for the press of numbers about him, forced his way into the house, gave himself into the hands of Calpurnia, and bade her keep him secure until Caesar came back, since he had important matters to report to him. Chapter 65 Furthermore, Artemidorus, a Canidian by birth, a teacher of Greek philosophy, and on this account brought into intimacy with some of the followers of Brutus, so that he also knew most of what they were doing, came bringing to Caesar in a small roll the disclosures which he was going to make. But seeing that Caesar took all such rolls and handed them to his attendants, he came quite near and said, Read this, Caesar, by thyself, and speedily, for it contains matters of importance and of concern to thee. Accordingly, Caesar took the roll and would have read it, but was prevented by the multitude of people who engaged his attention, although he set out to do so many times, and holding in his hand and retaining that roll alone, he passed on into the Senate. Some, however, say that another person gave him this role, and that Artemidorus did not get to him at all, but was crowded away all along the route. Chapter 66 So far, perhaps, these things may have happened of their own accord. The place, however, which was the scene of that struggle and murder, and in which the Senate was then assembled, since it contained a statue of Pompey, and had been dedicated by Pompey as an additional ornament to his theatre, 
made it wholly clear that it was the work of some heavenly power which was calling and guiding the action thither. Indeed, it is also said that Cassius, turning his eyes toward the statue of Pompey before the attack began, invoked it silently, although he was much addicted to the doctrines of Epicurus. But the crisis, as it would seem, when the dreadful attempt was now close at hand, replaced his former cool calculations with divinely inspired emotion, replaced his former cool calculations with divinely inspired emotion. Well then, Antony, who was a friend of Caesar's and a robust man, was detained outside by Brutus Albinus, who purposely engaged him in a lengthy conversation. But Caesar went in, and the Senate rose in his honor. Some of the partisans of Brutus took their places round the back of Caesar's chair, while others went to meet him as though they would support the petition which Tilius Cimber presented to Caesar in behalf of his exiled brother, and they joined their entreaties to his, and accompanied Caesar up to his chair. But when, after taking his seat, Caesar continued to repulse their petitions, and as they pressed upon him with greater importunity, began to show anger towards one and another of them. Tilius seized his toga with both hands and pulled it down from his neck. This was the signal for the assault. It was Casca who gave him the first blow with his dagger in the neck, not a mortal wound, nor even a deep one, for which he was too much confused, as was natural at the beginning of a deed of great daring, so that Caesar turned about, grasped the knife, and held it fast. At almost the same instant both cried out, the smitten man in Latin, Accursed Casca, what doest thou? But the smiter, in Greek, to his brother, Brother, help! So the affair began, and those who were not privy to the plot were filled with consternation and horror at what was going on. They dared not fly, nor go to Caesar's help nay, nor even utter a word. But those who had prepared themselves for the murder bared each of them his dagger, and Caesar hemmed in on all sides, whichever way he turned, confronting blows of weapons aimed at his face and eyes, driven hither and thither like a wild beast, was entangled in the hands of all, for all had to take part in the sacrifice and taste of the slaughter. Therefore Brutus also gave him one blow in the groin, and it is said by some writers that although Caesar defended himself against the rest, and darted this way and that, and cried aloud, when he saw that Brutus had drawn his dagger, he pulled his toga down over his head and sank, either by chance or because pushed there by his murderers, against the pedestal on which the statue of Pompey stood, and the pedestal was drenched with his blood, so that one might have thought that Pompey himself was presiding over this vengeance upon his enemy, who now lay prostrate at his feet, quivering from a multitude of wounds. For it is said that he received twenty-three, and many of the conspirators were wounded by one another as they struggled to plant all those blows in one body. Chapter 67 Caesar thus done to death, the senators, although Brutus came forward as if to say something about what had been done, 
would not wait to hear him, but burst out of doors and fled, thus filling the people with confusion and helpless fear, so that some of them closed their houses, while others left their counters and places of business and ran, first to the place to see what had happened, and then away from the place when they had seen. Antony and Lepidus, the chief friends of Caesar, stole away and took refuge in the houses of others. But Brutus and his partisans, just as they were, still warm from the slaughter, displaying their daggers bare, went all in a body out of the Senate house and marched to the Capitol, not like fugitives, but with glad faces and full of confidence, summoning the multitude to freedom and welcoming into their ranks the most distinguished of those who met them. Some also joined their number and went up with them as though they had shared in the deed and laid claim to the glory of it, of whom were Caius Octavius and Lentulus Spinther. These men, then, paid the penalty for their imposture later, when they were put to death by Antony and the young Caesar, without even enjoying the fame for the sake of which they died, owing to the disbelief of their fellow-men. For even those who punished them did not exact a penalty for what they did, but for what they wished they had done. On the next day Brutus came down and held a discourse, and the people listened to what was said, without either expressing resentment at what had been done, or appearing to approve of it. They showed, however, by their deep silence, that while they pitied Caesar, they respected Brutus. The Senate, too, trying to make a general amnesty and reconciliation, voted to give Caesar divine honors, and not to disturb even the most insignificant measure which he had adopted when in power while to Brutus and his partisans it distributed provinces and gave suitable honors, so that everybody thought that matters were decided and settled in the best possible manner. Chapter 68 But when the will of Caesar was opened, and it was found that he had given every Roman citizen a considerable gift, and when the multitude saw his body carried through the forum, all disfigured with its wounds, they no longer kept themselves within the restraints of order and discipline, but after heaping round the body benches, railings, and tables from the forum, they set fire to them and burned it there. Then lifting blazing brands on high, they ran to the houses of the murderers with intent to burn them down, while others went every whither through the city seeking to seize the men themselves and tear them to pieces. Not one of these came in their way, but all were well barricaded. There was a certain Cinna, however, one of the friends of Caesar, who chanced, as they say, to have seen during the previous night a strange vision. He dreamed, that is, that he was invited to supper by Caesar, and that when he excused himself, Caesar led him along by the hand, although he did not wish to go, but resisted. Now, when he heard that they were burning the body of Caesar in the forum, he rose up and went thither out of respect, although he had misgivings arising from his vision, and was at the same time in a fever. At sight of him one of the multitude told his name to another, who asked him what it was, and he to another, and at once word ran through the whole throng that this man was one of the murderers of Caesar. 
for there was among the conspirators a man who bore this same name of Cinna, and, assuming that this man was he, the crowd rushed upon him, and tore him in pieces among them. This, more than anything else, made Brutus and Cassius afraid, and not many days afterwards they withdrew from the city. What they did and suffered before they died has been told in The Life of Brutus. Chapter 69 At the time of his death, Caesar was fully fifty-six years old, but he had survived Pompey not much more than four years, while of the power and dominion which he had sought all his life, at so great risks, and barely achieved at last. Of this he had reaped no fruit, but the name of it only, and a glory which had awakened envy on the part of his fellow citizens. However, the great guardian genius of the man, whose help he had enjoyed through life, followed upon him even after death as an avenger of his murder, driving and tracking down his slayers over every land and sea, until not one of them was left, but even those who in any way soever either put hand to the deed or took part in the plot, were punished. Among events of man's ordering, the most amazing was that which befell Cassius. For after his defeat at Philippi, he slew himself with that very dagger which he had used against Caesar. And among events of divine ordering, there was the great comet which showed itself in great splendor for seven nights after Caesar's murder, and then disappeared, and also the obscuration of the sun's rays. For during all that year its orb rose pale and without radiance, while the heat that came down from it was slight and ineffectual, so that the air in its circulation was dark and heavy owing to the feebleness of the warmth that penetrated it and the fruits, imperfect and half-ripe, withered away and shriveled up, on account of the coldness of the atmosphere. But more than anything else, the phantom that appeared to Brutus showed that the murder of Caesar was not pleasing to the gods. And it was on this wise. As he was about to take his army across from Abydos to the other continent, he was lying down at night, as his custom was, in his tent, not sleeping but thinking of the future, for it is said that of all generals Brutus was the least given to sleep, and that he naturally remained awake a longer time than anybody else. And now he thought he heard a noise at the door, and looking towards the light of the lamp, which was slowly going out, he saw a fearful vision of a man of unnatural size and harsh aspect. At first he was terrified, but when he saw that the visitor neither did nor said anything, but stood in silence by his couch, he asked him who he was. Then the phantom answered him, I am thy evil genius, Brutus, and thou shalt see me at Philippi. At the same time, then, Brutus said courageously, I shall see thee. And the heavenly visitor at once went away. Subsequently, however, when arrayed against Antony and Caesar at Philippi in the first battle, he conquered the enemy in his front, routed and scattered them, and sacked the camp of Caesar. But as he was about to fight the second battle, the same phantom visited him again at night, and though it said nothing to him, Brutus understood his fate, and plunged headlong into danger, 
He did not fall in battle, however, but after the rout, retired to a crest of ground, put his naked sword to his breast, while a certain friend, as they say, helped to drive the blow home, and so died. End of section 20. Recording by Carol Pelster. End of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin, 1847-1920. to